Now, now, if you are a Seminole and you weren't here last week, all I can say is you missed it, okay? And so there was a, there was a, a conversion of sorts as I professed as my oldest daughter, our oldest daughter is entering FSU, this newfound emerging allegiance to Seminole Nation. And, and don't worry, we recorded that for posterity, okay? So it's on the church website. You can go see all the fun we had with that. But, you know, as with comes with anything new or any sort of conversion, you kind of start to see everything in a new light, okay? And so I was like, you know, I'm thinking about FSU. I'm thinking about the pregame ritual. And I have to admit to myself, you know, FSU has one of the coolest pregame shows in college football, right? Amen? All right, so there's the whole, you know, flaming spear. I guess I need to learn the names of all these people. The Indian guy on the horse and throwing the spear and the flame. And I know, Chief Osceola, all that good stuff. And when I think, as a college football fan, and when I think about all of my favorite college football pregame shows, you know, whether it's Tennessee opening up the power tee and the team running through, or Ohio State and the dotting of the I, or uh, Clemson running down the hill and rubbing the rock. And no, I try to think of something for LSU, but do they do football in Louisiana? Anyway, nonetheless, no, it's, they do baseball though, and they're doing good on that. All of them have this one thing in common. They all sort of build to this crescendo. And because I've entitled this sermon, The Crescendo, I thought I'd better look it up and make sure I know what I'm talking about. So here's how Webster's defines crescendo. A gradual, steady increase in loudness or force. The climactic point or moment in such an increase. The the peak moment. Now, there are several crescendos that we come across in the Gospel of John, the book of John. And we've reached one of those. And this might be the most famous of all crescendos in this book because it includes the very well-known verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. This is the King James Version, right? Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And even if you're not a Christian or even if you've never really grown up in church or you may be, undoubtedly you, you have some sort of connection to this verse. It was the felt board in your Sunday school class, okay? Or, or maybe you've seen the guy on TV with the multicolored hair holding the John 3, 316 placard that was, that was back in the 80s. But because John 3.16 is such a part of our vernacular and even our our common culture, there can be this propensity to sort of trivialize it, you know, to sort of make it a slogan. You know, it it sort of goes on our precious moments figurines or our post-it note calendars or all of our 80s people laughed on that one, okay, or our bumper stickers. But when we do that, I think one of the things that we lose is, is really what John has been building to here, that, that we, we lose the flow and the context and the sheer amazingness of this pronouncement. And I'm really praying that God would give us fresh eyes to see this verse and its surrounding verses anew. So let's put a little bit of context. Where, where have we been the last few weeks? Jesus has been having a dialogue at midnight with the Pharisee of Pharisees, Nicodemus. Nicodemus um, is not just a teacher. He he is the teacher in Israel. This is the the John Piper, Tim Keller of his day. He He does everything right. He's faithful. He's obedient. He observes the law. But curiously, there's something missing. 
There's, there, there's, there's something that Nicodemus is failing to grasp. There's an emptiness. There's, there's a hole in his heart, so to speak. And so he approaches Jesus, and, and sort of his implicit question is, what, what am I doing wrong? Why am I not happy? Why am I not fulfilled? What, what am I missing? And he says, I'm coming to you, Jesus, because we know you're from God. You're doing all these miracles, and it's amazing. And, you know, so, so surely you have some sort of insight or wisdom for me. And what Jesus tells him next is absolutely shocking. He says, Nicodemus, you've got it all wrong. This is not about what, what, what you can do for me. This is all about what God can do for you. See, you're spiritually blind, Nicodemus. You, not only can you not enter the kingdom, you can't even see it, perceive it from where you are. And so all your obedience, the law, all of it gains you nothing unless God changes your heart. Unless, God, unless you are born again of the Spirit, Nicodemus, you've got nothing. And, that, and that's kind of our climatic point that we reached last week where G, was Jesus is making this pronouncement. And here we come to John 3.16. And, and what we're going to see here is sort of God's response to your spiritual blindness and to mine. God's response to the fact that we are needy, helpless, and cannot save ourselves. Now, if you're still using like a real Bible like this, okay, versus the electronic one, which doesn't, I don't know if that really counts. But anyway, but although we do flash the words on the screen. But if you're looking at one of these, some of your Bibles are red letter Bibles, meaning that all the words or sayings of Jesus are put into red. Now, maybe it goes without saying, but when John originally wrote his gospel 60 years after the ascension of Jesus, he didn't write it with chapter divisions. He didn't write it with little verses, just like you wouldn't do that if you were writing a letter, or at least if you're not crazy, right? Okay, so, so, so he, he's writing this out, and he doesn't have color-coded markers or pens, okay? He's not a preset Bible study learner and like coloring everything. So it's really our best guess as to, in, in some cases, in a few cases, really, where, where is it that Jesus is speaking and not speaking, and where is John speaking? Doesn't mean it's not all authoritative in the Word of God, it is. It's important in this way because probably in most of your Bibles, John 3, 16 through 21 is in red. Now you just need to know, and again, this is not a hill to die on, but most scholars believe that this is probably not things that Jesus said. These are truths that John wrote about what Jesus said prior to that. And, and that's important because if you, because when you read these five verses, and you assume that Jesus is speaking, it sounds pretty awkward. The whole thing is sort of in third person. And, it's, and it's, it, you have Jesus saying things that he typically doesn't say about himself. But see, I think that's important because what we have here is John. Now, this is so cool. 60 years after this event, John is writing this down. And he's reflecting back upon this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And the reason John most likely knows about this interaction is because he was there. John, so you can imagine Jesus and he's at night talking, teaching with his disciples around the campfire. Nicodemus comes up and John witnesses this conversation. And it is now 60 years later that John reflects back on that and he's like, oh yeah, 
This was this interaction sort of moves towards this crescendo that's a crystallization of everything that the gospel is. That, that is the high water mark of the Christian faith. And we're just praying this morning that God will give us fresh ears and fresh eyes to see it. So let's stand as we do when we read God's word. Just six verses here, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, if it's true, and we believe it is, that it's the Spirit that gives sight, it's the Spirit that peels back the layers, it's the Spirit who opens eyes and hearts, then, then most certainly we are absolutely, completely dependent upon you, Jesus, to come and apply these truths. Lord, particularly, particularly so in such a familiar passage. And that's why we're asking for the supernatural wind to blow. We're praying, Father, that we could walk out of here, not just with another a neat uh, verse that we can put in calligraphy or write in our journal, but Lord, that, that we can grab hold of, that will be life transforming. Lord, we pray that you would do this. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let me take your seats. There's a lot in this passage, a lot of important things, a lot of things about you and a lot of things about me. But let me tell you, the most important things in this, in this section are not the ones about what you and I do. That's not the most important things. The most important things we find in, this, in these verses is who God is and what he has done. And I think we see sort of four actions or initiatives of God in this passage that I want to draw our attention to in our time together. And here they are. We're going to look at God's appraisal, God's intervention, God's mission, and then God's verdict. So let's dive in. God's assessment or God's appraisal. Verse 16, for God's love the world. Now, you need to know the word world in the Greek, um, cosmos, can mean a number of different things, okay? It can mean like the physical world, the world that we reside in, Tallahassee, Florida, um, the southeast part of the United States, the geography, the land, it can mean that. World can also mean what we would otherwise call worldliness, the ways of the world, the, 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 the values, the cultural standards that are sort of arrayed against God that we want to push back against. But, but sometimes world can mean, and I think that's what it means here, it's referring to people, okay? 
And, and here specifically, I think it refers to all of fallen humanity. Every person who's ever lived, um, every tongue, tribe, nation, ethnicity, socioeconomic class. And it says something interesting here in verses 16 and 17. It says that if God's sort of metaphorically casting his gaze over the globe, casting his gaze over humanity, and he's assessing it. He's appraising it. And, and here's something that, that, G, that John tells us right up front that we need to wrestle with. This appraisal does not yield us promising results. You see, we human beings are not in a, in a sort of a, a spiritual state of living in Switzerland, okay? Like we're neutral. Like we come into the world neutral and we have a, a little angel on our shoulder, right shoulder, a little devil on our left shoulder, do this, do this, no, do that, do that. And it's sort of like this tug of war for our hearts. That is, that's not the way John talks about this. Before Jesus shows up, verse 18, we are already condemned. See, verse 18, we're on death row awaiting the final execution of our sentence. And the reason that God is, is moved to act, which we'll talk about in just a minute, is because we are perishing. Okay, that, that is our born-into-the-world condition. You see, some people, some religious systems believe that, you know, because we're in neutral, we're just in a constant tug of war through our lives of earning, earning good things to outweigh the bad things that we do, works, righteousness, and it's not until the end of life whether we know we've made it or not. John says, no, 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 you can know right now whether you made it or not. You didn't make it, okay? You're, you're condemned. You are perishing. And when he, is, when he mentions the word perishing, that is set in opposition to this term eternal life. See, perishing here does not simply mean physical death. So in other words, when people die, um, there will be some that will be destined for eternal life, those who place their faith in Christ. But everyone else who has it, they just sort of cease to exist. Their, their souls are no longer alive. That's, and that's a theological position called annihilationism. It just means your soul is sort of obliterated and wiped off the map. But I would venture to say a couple of things to this. Number one, who is it that talks the most in the Bible about a literal heaven or hell? It's, Jesus. it's one word, Jesus, okay? He's always the right answer. And here, doubly so. He teaches on this over and over and over again. And hell is always depicted as not merely spiritual separation or not being with God, but as an actual place. And I would say that just as there is an eternal ongoing heaven, clearly the implication here is that there is an eternal ongoing state of being separated from God. We are perishing. Now, if that is not true, then what we're doing with this Haiti group is just pointless. It's just pointless. What, what sort of incentive? Okay, maybe we can offer people eternal life, but you know, if they, if they reject Christ or they don't come to another faith, nah, it's not that big a deal. They won't know any different anyway. That's not biblical Christianity. Now, if you, if, um, we don't have it here on the screen, but if you drop down in your Bibles to John 3.36... This is depicted incredibly vividly. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Okay, got that? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Wrath of God. Everything about God is an eternal attribute, including his justice, his righteousness, and his wrath. And so when when God assesses, when God looks out over the sea of humanity, we have to locate ourselves in that and say, just as everyone, we were born perishing, born under condemnation, which would not make for a very happy sermon if we stopped there, okay? Which is why we don't. Second point, God's intervention. So what did God do in response to this appraisal, this assessment? Look back at verse 16. It said, God so loved the world that he gave his son. Now, a lot of times, you know, little kids and their parents, and this is, this is awesome, okay? You know, mom and dad, I love you what? So much, okay? And we used to bribe our kids to get them to say that to us, and then we would video it and send it to the grandparents. It was awesome. And that, that's not exactly what is meant here. Now, certainly the scope of God's love is amazing. We're going to talk about that. But here it means... God loved the world in this particular way. And this is what he did. This is what he was prepared to do. And it says he gave his son. Look at verse 17. It says he sent his son. That's interesting language. It's God sees a crisis on planet earth of people under his wrath. And he sends, he dispatches his son for a particular mission. Now, when we remember 9-11 and the over 3,000 people that that died as a part of um, the September 11, 2001 date, we we remember everyone, but there's a particular group of people that, that we especially want to honor, right? It's those firefighters, rescue workers who perished as a part of all of that terrorism, and we say, well, why do we do that? Well, remember, there were so many testimonies that as the, as, the, as the World Trade Center was going up in flames, the Twin Towers, and people were pouring out of, that, of those two buildings down the staircases, escaping what they knew was going to be certain death if they did not get out. What did many of them testify to that was also happening? As they were on the way down and out, there were firefighters, hundreds, on the way in and up. And as they passed them on those stairwells and the looks they exchanged, I think everyone knew what was happening. You see, they were being dispatched to what they almost certainly knew was their certain death. And that's, in the same way, the nature of God's intervention it says he sent his son. Now, 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 let me qualify this for a second. There's many things that Jesus came to, did, to do here on earth that we need to understand all of them, model, emulate, um, to, to, to know more about his teachings on morality. The fact that he healed sick people, he ministered to the poor. The fact that he was a, um, a presence of God to people in their lives, that he came to comfort the hurting. And all those things are incredibly significant. And I don't want to denigrate a single one of them, except to say those aren't the things that Jesus fundamentally came to do. 
the primary thing that Jesus came to do, the reason he was sent, the reason he was dispatched by the Father, was that he came to die. There was not a shred of doubt in his mind as the God-man for why he was there. In fact, so much so that when the disciples tried to deter him from this idea, Peter's like, you're not going to die in Jerusalem. Are you kidding me? What does he say? Behind me, Satan, behind me. Because Jesus knew why he had been sent. That was the Father's intervention to the wrath that was being poured out upon us. Now, if you go back to verse 16... And we're asking the reason. Now, why did this have to be Jesus, though? Could God have not done this a different way? Could not, could, could, I mean, couldn't it have been just a whole bunch of animal sacrifices? Or another person, or another man, or a prophet? I think John gives us a clue here. So when it says, only son, if you memorize the King James Version when you were little, that word was translated what? His only what? Begotten son. Literally, the Greek, his one and only son, or I think more precisely, his one-of-a-kind son, his unique son. See, that's what John is pointing us to here, that this death that Jesus came to die as part of this dispatchment from the Father was a death only he could, he could accomplish. It doesn't do any good for a mere man to die for a mere man eternally speaking, because guess what? You're both dead, right? But it was the God-man, the one who had power over life and death, the one who lived a perfect life, the one who not only represented God, but was God, was the only one who could absorb the wrath of God, take it upon himself, and then in dying, rise from the grave. This was something only he and he could do because he was unique. Remember, Christian, very easy in our postmodern age to kind of think about our Christian faith or to think about Jesus as simply one more, one more religious authority sort of seated around the round table of spirituality. You know, the round table. No one's above another. We're all learning from each other. We're all in dialogue. We're all, you know, we're, you know we are the world, all those sorts of things. Okay? Jesus is fundamentally unique. Every other world religion, just like Nicodemus, we're straining. We're straining to be, to be accepted by God or to find perfect peace in our soul or to do this or to do that or to find meaning in our life. But here it says, God, no, no, no. He didn't say, humanity, you're doing okay. Try a little harder. He said, I'm sending my son. I'm sending my one and only son. I'm sending my unique son to die. That is how God demonstrated his love towards us. Now, as humans, it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around the enormity of the love of God. But I started thinking about how, how can we begin to, to grasp that? And because and, and, we want to we walk out of here in, in greater appreciation and worship and gratitude to God as we think about this, as we think about what we were rescued. If, if we don't get that, then, then that's not honoring to God. That's something that we take advantage of. That's something that we take for granted. So we, we need to understand a little bit more about this enormity of God's love. So thinking about this trip to Haiti, most of these kids going up here are high school students. 
And parents, if, if, if you were to know with, with certainty that God were to tell you that the result of this mission trip is that hundreds, if not thousands, of Haitians would be saved because of your child going on this trip. But there would be one hitch. That you're not sending your child on a mission trip. You're sending your child on a death trip. And you know in sending them that they are 100% absolutely going to die. All you have to do is just give the word and they won't go. Parents, it's not even fair to say what would you do, right? Because all of us as parents, if we're any kind of parents of all, are like, no, no, right? Not my child. See, that's the whole point of the gospel. By the way, God's not asking you to do that necessarily in the same way. God's not asking you to send your son or your daughter to bear the sins of the world, which makes the point of the enormity of God's love. And you may say, well, Pastor Paul, come on. I mean, God knew he was going to raise his son. Surely that made it easier for him, right, to see his son go through all these atrocities. Oh, really? You know, when our kids were little, I was dubbed the official vaccination parent, okay, which basically means we take our little cuddly bundle of joy in who was smiling and laughing and thought mom and dad were awesome and then the doctor would inflict untold pain upon them and stick in these long needles right in their in their bootums and their legs all right and so 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 I was the vaccination parent because Susan just couldn't she couldn't do it right I mean it was like it was too traumatic it's too hard she couldn't take it for one second Even if we knew our child was going to be raised from the dead, and by the way, which they are, which they are. Parents, how long could you restrain yourself? How long could you restrain yourself seeing untold atrocities being committed against your child? Moms, how long? One second? Two? Three? Four? But not only that, it says God not only didn't come to his son's rescue, what else did he do? He turned his back as Jesus absorbed his wrath. And it was such a moment of not not just not coming to rescue, but in fact condemning, damning his son, that Jesus said, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? See, that's, if we can just get a little glimpse of that, a little taste of that, we begin to understand something of the enormity of God's Love. See, he didn't just simply appraise humanity and say, you're done. But he intervened because of his love, because of his glory. And he sent his son on a mission. That's our third point. What, what was the nature of this mission? Okay, verse 17. Says, John says something really interesting here. He says, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Now, that can be a little confusing, especially when we get to parts in the book of John where it sure looks like Jesus is condemning. It sure looks like Jesus is pronouncing judgment over the Pharisees and judgment over Jerusalem for rejecting him. It It sure appears that Jesus is condemning. 
This can be confusing. Let me try to kind of give some context here for what I think John means by this. See, when Jesus came to the earth, it's not as if we were all on a one-way train heading to heaven and God sort of arbitrarily comes along and decides who gets the spirit and who doesn't. No spirit for you, you're off the train, okay? That's, that, that's not the right image. The right image is that we are already on the train to hell. And God, we are, verse 17, we are already condemned. See, Jesus did not come to do something that had already been done. We had already had that death sentence passed. Jesus came to rescue people who were on the hellbound train. Through the, he came to supernaturally snatch through the power of his spirit some of those who were perishing. That was his mission. That's why John can say, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn. You're already condemned. He came in the world to save. He came in the world to, to supernaturally snatch. Now, if you're paying attention, and I hope, I hope you have been the last few weeks, there's a theological tension in this passage that's present throughout the Bible, but it's particularly present in the book of John. And, and we don't want to gloss over it. Okay? We, we don't want to not acknowledge it for fear of not being able to resolve it. Okay? And, 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 and if, I think you kind of know where I'm going. Most of you probably do. Here's the theological tension about this mission of God, the mission of Jesus. Jesus has told us the Spirit blows where it wills. We saw that in John, earlier in John 3, right? The spirit, it's the wind. The Spirit is the wind. You can't control the wind. You can't conjure up the wind. You can only watch the wind, observe the wind, see the effects of the wind. The wind blows where it will over those who will be saved. That is true. And that holds up an important, what I think is a central doctrine of Scripture, is the sovereignty of God over salvation. That, that again, using that same Switzerland analogy, you and I are not in neutral and just going along doing our thing. And we're like, hmm, I wonder, will it be Jesus or will it not be Jesus? Hmm. I, I, that, that, that's an interesting quandary. That's an interesting way. No, 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 no. You could not see the kingdom. You could not enter the kingdom. And so the spirit blows. And just like the prodigal son in the pig pen in the distant country you come to, your eyes are opened. You see yourself for who you truly are. You see Jesus for who he truly is. And this text upholds the sovereignty of God. And thankfully, because that would be a, a terrible burden for you and I to bear. Parents, it would be a terrible burden to say, your parenting has a one-to-one -one correlation with whether your child comes to know Christ or not. What a tyranny. How awful. God has not asked you to carry that burden. He carries that burden. Yet, yet, verse 16, whosoever. See, and, and, and John does this all the time. God's in control of salvation, but whosoever believes in him, the free offer of the gospel, the gospel is open to everyone without distinction. See, it's not my job up here to say, well, the Spirit may be blowing here, it may be blowing there, I'm not sure. No, 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 no. 
That's God's business. Our responsibility is to proclaim it. Our, our responsibility is to pray for it. Our responsibility is to, is to without distinction, your next-door neighbor, your friend. Um, guys, as, as, as Pastor Scott was mentioning earlier um, this morning, guys, come down here on a Saturday morning and just see the beehive of, of activity that, that, that this place is. God is literally, okay, bringing the city of Tallahassee, like, to the mountain of the Lord, okay? He literally is doing this. What an awesome movement of the Spirit to say, I want to talk, I want to reach, I want to visit, I want to connect, I want to, I mean, guys, an, what an amazing gift of sovereign Spirit. We don't know what the Spirit is doing specifically, but we know this, whosoever. Whosoever. The free offer of the gospel, God's sovereignty. Now, you may say, I, don't, I can't get that. I can't reconcile those things. Church, God isn't asking you to reconcile these things. He's just asking you to acknowledge that both are true. See, a lot of times we get too cute on these things. And we try to rescue, these, rescue God from these quandaries, these philosophical quandaries. And we'll do this by saying, well, well, let's limit his knowledge. You know, see, God really doesn't know. That's called open theism. Sometimes we'll, we'll limit God's power. Oh, no, 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 no. God would not impose himself on anyone. There's just little Jesus knocking on the door of someone's heart. Knock, 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 okay? No, 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 no. Jesus is breaking down doors to people's hearts through the power of the Spirit. See, it's God's call to change sinners' hearts. It's our responsibility and call to proclaim the glories of the gospel, and we leave the results to him. Because when we, Susan and I were in Campus Crusade for Christ in, in college in Knoxville, and one, one spring break, they sent a bunch of us 19- and 20-year-old college students to Daytona Beach the largest spring break in the history of Daytona Beach, 500,000 kids. And they gave us these little, these little four spiritual law booklets and said, go for it, okay? And we were just absolutely terrified, okay? We didn't have any motorcycles or leather jackets or anything. We're just out there, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? But one of the things that they said that just still sticks with me that I think is so good, they said, you know what? Your, your, your call is simply to be obedient. Parents, your call is simply to be obedient to share, proclaim, to pray, to call to. It's God's responsibility to take care of the results. And that's what John is continually holding out to us here. But that is his mission. He appraises humanity. He sees the lostness. He sends his son. He moves through his spirit not to condemn, but to save those who were already perishing. Which brings us to our last point, God's verdict. Now, this is going to be a little bit more of a personal application section because I think what John does here is that knowing everything he has just told us about God's mission and how God, God works and God's sovereignty and the offer of the gospel he now, from a human level, wants to pop the hood up for us for a second and say, now, let me tell you what belief 
and unbelief really look like in a person's life? Let me tell you what belief and unbelief really looks like. And in verses 19 through 21, he uses this courtroom language. He talks about the fact that um, a verdict has been rendered. Now, let me read these verse 19 and 20 again, just to kind of get us up to speed on this. John says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. See, I think John here gives us a perspective behind what is belief and what is unbelief. And here is what unbelief looks like, John says. Here's what unbelief looks like. Verse 17, light has come into the world, and we know from the prologue, John 1, Jesus is the light of the world. He's talking about Jesus. Because Jesus has come into the world, and humanity is doing bad stuff. We are doing evil things. We are doing wicked things. Verse 19, we are on our own. We are living our lives. And when the light comes, we don't like the light. Now, why don't we like the light? Because the light exposes what we are doing. The light shines on those things we want to be kept hidden. The light shines on those things that we don't want to change, that we we are desperately holding on to. And it says that those people hate the light. And instead, they retreat to darkness. Now, here's something interesting. I would submit to you that unbelief is not primarily an apologetic issue. It's not because someone has not read enough Robbie Zacharias or Josh McDowell or or R.C. Sproul. The problem is not logic. The problem is not understanding. The problem is moral. The problem is the will. See, the word that John uses, that people love the darkness, the word there, they prefer it. Their hearts gravitate to it. They love to do what they are going to do. And they don't come because they don't want to relinquish control. They don't come because they don't want to give it up. They don't come because they don't want to entrust themselves to another. Guys, that is true of unbelievers. If you're here this morning, you need to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes a unique claim on all of our lives. That the light has come and we come to him because we recognize that life is not working for us. We, we, we come to him because we understand that we are a broken people. We are a needy people that we cannot save ourselves. Guys, that, 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 is, that is biblical faith. Unbelief is saying, God, I, you can't have that. See, God, if I, if I, if, if, if I come to the light, that's going to mean things for my marriage. That's going to mean things for my ethics at work. It's going to mean things for my parenting. It's going to mean things for my money. 
going to mean things for whatever I'm grabbing hold of. I think John Piper describes this well. But when Christ, the light of the world, begins to shine on a person's life, okay, every one of us here, God's light is shining on you this morning. Now listen to this. It must either break him and lead him to repentance and faith or drive him further into the darkness. Because it is simply intolerable when our sinful works and thoughts and feelings are forced out into the light of Christ. Isn't that so true? Sin is so ugly and so monstrous and so hideous that it must surround itself with darkness. It must live in illusion and deceit. It hates the light and loves the darkness and will not come to the light. This is the inner working of unbelief in Jesus. What is belief then? Folks, this morning, belief is understanding that you bring nothing to the table when it relates to your relationship with God. It means understanding that you are broken, that you are messed up, that you are sinful, that I am sinful, that what we've been doing hasn't been working. Our life of independence in the dark is not taking us where we want it to take us. And God is offering this call, this invitation to come to the light. Do you want to come to the light? Just like a doctor when you have a disease and you know the the radical surgery that he or she is going to do is going to remake you, but it is so, so good. It is so, so necessary. This is what happens when we come to Christ. He takes us apart and he begins to put us back together again. And it is there that we find cleansing and mercy and forgiveness. So the call to to Nicodemus, the call to you, is to come to the light, which is Jesus. To find hope in him. To find rest in him. To recognize in him the enormity and the initiative of God's love for you while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him and trusting themselves to him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray.